So we're going to be in Malachi. We've got a lot to get through. Uh, we got one verse, and uh, we've also got communion this morning. And so if you would be turning to the book of Malachi, and as you're turning there, I want to ask you a, a question, uh, because again, um, I, I think this is, given what Christ has done for us and the call of the Great Commission, which we heard about on Easter Sunday through the resurrection of Christ, it would be it would be wrong of us not to recognize that we are all actually tasked with mission. We are all tasked with sharing the love of God with those around us in some form or fashion. Some of you are going to be more verbally based. Some of you are more actions based. Some of you, it'll be parenting, uh, the majority of what you do missionally. Some of you, it will be through your job, your vocationally. And some of you, it will be um, just in a number of ways of how you use your gifts. So I want to recognize that we do have a vast array of ways in which we care for, love, and share this with one another. And so um, the thing that we want to walk away with this morning is that God graciously burdens his people to share his love with others who have strayed away from him or have never known him in their spheres of influence. Let me read that again because the wording is critical. God graciously burdens. Now, first of all, the fact that God would burden anyone to share his love with someone else who has gone astray or doesn't know him is an act of mercy and grace in and of itself. And so the, the thing that we should always do when reading the prophets is first recognize that the actual speaking, though they may have hard words to say to us, it is actually a gracious burden that has been given. And it's not just the burden of the prophet. It's the burden of the Lord our God to make sure that we know him, to know that he loves us, which is why he sent Jesus to ultimately share most clearly, most beautifully his love for us. And we'll see that in the table this morning. So the question that I would ask you that from this gracious burden that God gives his people to share with others is what burdens are you carrying this morning? Now, the chances are uh, every single one of you is carrying a burden of some kind this morning, whether it is you're interviewing for a job and you're interested to know where all that's going to play out. For some of you, it is your kids are going through something in particular, no matter how old they are, um, and you are burdened with uh, seeing them uh, come to understand the love of God and live a life that glorifies Him, and, uh, and, and so you're burdened with that this morning. Maybe some of you are burdened with a neighbor and what they're going through. Maybe some of you are just burdened with uh, just a, a, a theological weight, uh, something that you're wrestling with from Scripture that you've run across or an idea. Uh, most often, we, we heard the term predestination in Ephesians 1 this morning. That one tends to carry a ton of burdensome weight for people. And we oftentimes do a lot of uh, gymnastics to try to deal with that word instead of just receiving what it's actually trying to tell us, which is God loves you. And God picks way more people than you ever would, including you. And so uh, it is the, uh, it's just an offer of grace and not something used to divide and destroy and overbear us. And so you have a burden probably this morning. It could be your own failures. Maybe just this week uh, you didn't measure up. Maybe, maybe you're struggling with a health issue of some kind, a relational issue of some kind. All of us, if we're honest, uh, have some sort of burden, I bet, that we're carrying in here this morning. Now, the question, and that's just going to be true in a fallen world, and true particularly should be true for the people of God. Every single person who claims to be a Christian ought to have a burden of some kind that they're actively dealing with, key word, actively. 
So the question then becomes is, is that burden that you're carrying, is it weighing you down? Or is it actually encouraging you to step deeper into and access the love of God, which provides for you all of the spiritual blessings that you could need to deal with that burden? Are you actively working through it? Are you accessing all of the wisdom and the power and the glory that you could have access to to deal with it? Or, as so many of us, myself included, did you just have a lot of quit in you? You just, again, you've already decided, I know what they're going to say. I know the tactic they're going to take. And therefore, you rob yourself of finding out, no, in fact, you may be more loved than you realized. You actually may be more cared for than you ever thought was possible. You may actually discover a grace that was there for you all along that the Lord had brought so near to you but you are just rejecting out of hand because you refuse to go and get it. And so often we're much more reactionary than, than proactive, which is, and you've heard me say this before, we don't like doing postmortems. We don't like calling the time of death of a relationship or a situation uh, or a church membership. We would much rather walk with you through and have it be reconciliatory than, than to have it be something that is, that is costly both to you and to those around you. However, we always try to fix it ourselves. We always, we think we can figure it out for ourselves. We have the internet for crying out loud, right? And so we just think, I don't, I don't want to go adding other people into it. And so um, we should. We should actually use everything at our disposal to try to wrestle with whatever it is that is burdening us. Because, remember Christ's words, Come, all ye who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you. What? More of y'all got to know that than that. I'm going to try it one more time, all right? I'm going to turn around. Even. All right, I'm going to come back. Come, all ye who are heavy laden and burdened, and I, Christ, will give you. Amen. Amen. That's good. And we need to know that. Now, our problem is we want to try to figure out how he's going to do, how's he going to do it, though. I mean, how's he going to do it? What's it going to look like? What, what, I mean, before, and just, no, just receive the good gift that he is offering to you. Don't try to work out all the math because you can't. It's supernatural. It bends physics and time and math and chemistry and biology. It bends it all to God's will because he loves us. And that should make us say amen. Right? And so... What burdens are you carrying and why are you carrying them? And how are you dealing with how you're carrying them? That's a really important question for us to deal with this morning. So as we come to Malachi, Malachi's, the entire book of Malachi is about his burden. And, he, and the burden is God's love for us. And so Malachi is the last prophetic voice in the Old Testament. Uh, for those of you who have the devotional, uh, you have access to it online as well. There's a great chart in the very back in Appendix A um, uh, the excursus on Jacob and Esau will be Appendix B when it comes out, but it really shows where Malachi lands in the history, and history matters, by the way, uh, where he falls in the scheme of things. And so he's the last voice uh, that speaks prophetically, but does that mean that God didn't continue to speak? No. He continues to speak through the words that he has spoken. He continues to speak through his priests and his worship. 
So it would be a, a wrong thing for us to say that there was actually some, some sort of 400 years of true intertestamental silence. There's not. It's just the prophetic voice has resolved until the coming of John the Baptist, and that signals the coming of Christ, and that was, that was the reason for that. And so during this time frame, um, the people of God had actually, uh, it was actually going fairly well. They had returned from exile in three large groups. Um, if you know anything about their history, it's King Cyrus who calls for them to return and begin to rebuild the temple. And that occurs in the time of Ezra. And so Ezra covers essentially the rebuilding of the temple. You also have the prophets Haggai and Zephaniah who helped the people do what they needed to do to rebuild the temple. But there was also an issue with the wall. Uh, it wasn't rebuilt like it was supposed to, so the city was not protected. And so in steps Nehemiah to deal with that. And so, but between Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, the people of God are not completely safe. You have the book of Esther, which occurs during the time of Ahasuerus. And so there is a bit of a challenge to the people of God during that time frame. And so they meet with challenges along the way, but by the time Malachi's voice is heard, the temple's been rebuilt. The wall more than likely had been, been finished or was being finished in the time of Nehemiah. And so he is stepping into not a time of idolatry. You notice he doesn't say anything if you've read the book of Malachi. And I would encourage you to do so for this series. Read it in full in one sitting. It doesn't take much and kind of get a feel for it. But he doesn't talk anything about idolatry like all of the other prophets do. He's actually dealing with the people who've grown fat and happy and discontent. Does that sound at all familiar? Are we not in our culture just in a glut of haveness? Don't we have more than we could ever comprehend? Don't we have access to more than, than has probably ever been in history? And yet, is this not the most anxious, depressed, and broken time we've ever known? And so, Malachi's got something to say to us too. And see, what had happened was that the glory of the Lord, they, they assumed that, that when they returned from exile, that the record would just start back up and the promised land would be what it once was and the nations would just stream in and everything would be amazing. But that's not what happens. They're still under Persian rule. Actually, the Persians conquer the Babylonians and basically assume charge over the Israelites. And so they continue to have to pay heavy taxation to the Persians. And no, the nations aren't streaming in. The people have not all returned. The temple has been rebuilt, but the glory has not returned as far as they can see it. It's a hard season. They've already been through a lot, but it wasn't as awesome as they thought it was going to be. Does that sound familiar to you at all? You ever experienced that? Like you, you, you think, man, if I could just get this next thing, it's going to change everything. And it does, but not in the way you thought. It's not near as awesome, and it's so much harder than what you thought. And so their return to the promised land from exile turned out to be a lot harder than they had planned for. So what it sparked in them is a cynicism, a religious malaise that Malachi is having to speak to because their hearts were drifting from the Lord. They were beginning to question his love for them. How gracious is God that he would send someone, burden someone to go and tell them, don't forget that I love you. 
and then have everything change out of that. So the indicative for the book of Malachi is God's unchanging covenant love. Every imperative that follows rises from the indicative. If you're like, I don't know what indicative imperative, look it up, spend some time with it, come talk to me, let's work through it because you're going to need to know it because it's going to be an important idea in Malachi and then when we do first and second Peter, indicatives and imperatives become crucial because you get it twisted and you will be a legalist or you will cheapen grace and you will lose ultimately your understanding and appreciation and joy in the, in the, joy, in the love of God for you. So as we step into this, hear what Ralph Smith, who wrote an article called The Shape of Theology in the Book of Malachi, says about the circumstances. He says, Malachi faced a mountain of apathy. Let me just pause right there. Is this not modern evangelicalism in some sense? Is the church, is, are you not at times just overwhelmed with apathy, if we're honest? Just thinking, what does it matter? What does it even matter? I tried, you know, a little bit, and God just didn't, who, who cares? What's this going to change anyway? Uh, we're fixing to get nuked anyway by, you know, Satan 2, which is the name of the giant bullet that the Russians have. I mean, what's the, what's the point? Might as well eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we're going to have our flesh peeling off of us. That's not a happy thought at all, actually. And yes, I get that would make you slightly apathetic. But you know how long that threat has been going on? Even just uniquely in America, by the way, we've been threatening to remove each other from the face of the earth since the mid-40s. And the Lord has not allowed it yet. Do you know who all has nukes in this world who are just crazy as possibly can be? And hate each other and doesn't care what it's going to do to the rest of the world if they nuke each other? Wow. Wow. Do you have any idea that, the, that England uh, makes weapon-grade plutonium and oftentimes loses an entire shipment of it on occasion? Where do you think that shipment goes? Probably not into the right hands. So the Lord is sovereign, and so our apathy is unjustified, as was theirs. He goes on, he says, it is never easy to deal with indifference. When people cease to care, religion, morality, social customs, and values cease to function as the mortar that holds a society together. In Malachi's time, certain religious fundamentals such as election, the love, and justice of God were doubted. Malachi tried to rekindle the fires of faith in the hearts of his discouraged people. He assured them that God still loved them and the covenant was still in force. So this is Malachi's burden, that the people of God would know that they are loved. This is our burden for you as the leaders of Christ Community Church, that you would know that God's love has not in any way, shape, or form failed, that it is still as much in play today as it was on the best day that you've had in worship. And those of you who come in here this morning apathetic and indifferent, I've got good news for you. That is not the end for you. The Spirit can move in your heart. The question is, will you take and use the means of grace to be rekindled? And will you be patient with the Lord who has been patient with you? Let me read Malachi 1.1 and try out these glasses for the first time. Now, some of your Bibles say the oracle, uh, the actual wording, a better translation of it is burden. 
the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by, by Malachi. What a beautiful thing that it's not just called a word, it's called a burden. It is something that is heavy. In fact, it's a word, that Hebrew word, there's often used for a statement of judgment. Well, if you're warned, if I warn you, is that not gracious? If I warn you, is that not gracious? Yes, yes it is. It's very gracious. In fact, my daughter's here with us this morning. And I told her, I can't tell you how many times, this gracious warning. If I ask you, what is it? I already know. But my asking you is me giving you the chance to tell me first and admit to what's going down. Now, how many times do you think she partook of that grace? If you didn't hear her, she said, you always said it, so I always thought it was a trick. Right? Now, why did I always say it? Anybody, why do you think I always said it? Because I loved her. I still love her, not past tense. (laughs) Still love her, right? I love her. And was it ever really a trick? No. No. It wasn't, but I get it, right? We get it. We just can't believe. Like, grace just is so mind-blowing to us. We just can't. We know the wickedness of our own heart. We know what we would do in those circumstances. We know how we would work the system, right? We know how we would set somebody up. And I don't blame her for thinking, but does he really know? And how much does he know? I I get it. I'd question too. But after a few tries, you'd think you might go, well, let let me just try something different once in a while. To be fair to her, my son never took it either. And so uh, we just don't trust the Lord when he says to us, I love you. We're like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It just feels like a setup. I just can't put myself out there. I just can't be that vulnerable. I just, I don't know. I don't trust it. But here Malachi is saying, I I have a burden for you all. And it's interesting, the language that he uses, he calls them Israel. Now, any of you who know your history Israel oftentimes was what was called what the North Kingdom was called. At this point, where is the North Kingdom? It is no more and will never be again as the North Kingdom. It was also a name that was given to someone else, a man named Jacob, which is going to be critical for what's coming next week. And so when he calls them Israel, he is saying to all of you, not just you who've returned to, to rebuild the temple to Jerusalem, but to all the scattered ones, you are still my people. And I am still your God, and I am still moving toward reconciliation. And so in that word, he's declaring to them, his covenant love has not changed, though he has had to discipline them. And he is still God, and he is still sovereign. Now, the word Malachi actually is, uh, it means my messenger. And for those of you who've done any study on Malachi, there's a lot of questions about whether or not this is a proper name or whatnot. Um, but, but the majority of, of scholars come down on the side of it. It's, it's a proper name, and it actually could be a shortened form of uh, Yahweh's messenger. 
And so, uh, and there's some, I won't bore you with some of the grammatical details as to why that's probably true, but this is, this is actually a person who's coming, not just a word that's been circulated. And that's even more true because his style is a disputation style. So here's what that means. That means it's kind of a, a, a statement and then a question and, and counter question. And it's almost like a law court type term, but it's very wisely done because he's anticipating uh, what they're going to question and say, and it's God speaking to the people, not just Malachi. And so here he is, God's messenger with God's burden for God's people. Now, he's probably coming somewhere in the mid-400s, like I said, during the time of Nehemiah. Um, and the people of, of Judah uh, have rebuilt the temple, and all is, is getting better than it was. But I want to read to you a couple of uh, passages from other places in Scripture so you'll know a little bit about how God in his sovereignty had orchestrated these things. Because they don't come back because of the kindness of a Persian king. They come back because of the prophecy and the goodness of a sovereign Lord. So if you would, turn to Isaiah 44. Uh, we'll begin in verse 24, and we'll read through 45.7. And this is where Isaiah predicts that Cyrus is going to uh, be the Persian king, and he names him, which causes a lot of people to question whether or not Isaiah actually wrote this uh, in 800 BC, or was it written by multiple people over time? But given that it's, it's a, a prophecy of sort, like we just can't comprehend the supernatural. And so I see it as, as do many scholars, as it is actual prophecy. Um, and so here, let's hear what uh, the prophet says, prophet Isaiah, beginning in verse 24, he says, thus says the Lord, listen at this, thus says the Lord, your redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill my purpose, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and the temple, your foundation, shall be laid. Then says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belt of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed, who will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the, and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness, I make well-being, and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Did you hear that? 
the word of Isaiah to the people who were in exile. There would come a day when Jerusalem would be rebuilt, the temple would be rebuilt, and he names the king by which he will do it, that he will pave the way. Now think about it, if you're in exile and Babylon starts to lose to Persia, they begin to lose to this king named Cyrus, what would that say to you who have sat in darkness for so long? No, the light is coming to those who sit in darkness. Come out. I am the Lord. Notice what he says. You who don't even know me, I am the Lord, and I will deliver you, and I will rebuild the temple. It is I who do these things and no one else. And so we see that fulfilled, if you would flip quickly to the uh, book of Ezra, um, which is uh, before, you, before the Proverbs and Psalms and all those things. In the book of Ezra, I just want you to hear how the book of Ezra opens. And this is amazing. It's in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And when it says that the Lord can move the hearts of kings, that's what's happening here. He's moved Cyrus's heart to do his will. And listen at what Cyrus said. He declares that the Lord is in Jerusalem. And it's not just Cyrus who declares it. Artaxerxes writes a letter later on declaring that the Lord, the Lord is the one who resides in Jerusalem and that the people of God should have every resource they could ever possibly need to do what's necessary to glorify the Lord their God. Now think about that for a second. A pagan king who is conquering the known world declaring that the Lord is God and that his people should have everything they possibly need to glorify him. How much more? If a pagan king can get it, should we, the people of God, declare better? That what we bring in raw material to worship week in and week out, which, by the way, is a, is, is a gift and not a burden, should be. Now, I do understand that sometimes it does feel like a burden. I recognize that. I used to try to get kids up to go to church when they had long since not wanted to go and had to declare, but you live in my house. If you're going to eat my Cheetos, you're going to go to my church. <laughs> and so, so here we have... Uh, this gift that we get to do every week, it's a privilege. We get to worship the Lord our God who is good and who loves us. Why does that not move us more than it does? See, that's the question. That's the burden that we should wrestle with. And we should not allow it to so easily be swept away from us. And you may say, well, it would be easier 
you preach shorter, if you had less liturgy or less scripture or more music or more this or more that, we could do all that. I can guarantee it wouldn't change the needle one bit. Because if the bare declaration of the Lord our God in and what and how we do what we do doesn't turn the crank, I'm not going to manipulate you. Nor am I going to try to make it more palatable. I don't know how to make the love of God more palatable than its declaration. In and through our assurance of pardon and then our declaration and the blessing that we receive in the benediction. And so what we have uh, is God coming to his people through his prophet to declare to them yet again, even though they have become totally apathetic and couldn't care less about worshiping him, nor could they care less about their neighbors. See, that's what we're going to see in the book of Malachi is that yet again, and we've said this before, worship and ethics go together. Our worship should shape our ethics. How we treat our neighbors should be deeply affected by what we know and understand about the Lord our God. If we are able to divorce those two and kind of keep up this sacred secular distinction, woe be unto us, we do not understand the gospel at all. It is fascinating to me that people can be so adamant about the law when it comes to everyone else but themselves. It's fascinating to me that people can be so adamant about grace for themselves and extend so little to everyone around them. And that is the line that runs through my own heart. And I know it runs through all of us as well. And so we have the indicative of God's love being stated to us so that the imperative of worship and social ethic, that we would rightly understand this. And this is important. This goes back to that heart behavior issue, the banks of the river. It's not that your behavior is going to change God's love for you. Once, that, once he's declared it, it is finished. And amen. Let me try that again. Once God declares his love for you, it doesn't change. It is finished. Amen? amen. All right. That's a little better. Yeah, it's kind of weak still, but we'll, we'll, we'll work with it. However, what affects us, what affects us is how our behavior clouds or distorts or blinds us to God's love for us. You understand? So it's not that it changes him. It's that it changes you. It's not that it, it, it changes how he feels about you. It changes how you feel about yourself and him and your neighbor. And that is critical. That's the distinction. So obedience matters in the missional sense. Um, obedience doesn't matter in the sense of our own justification, our savedness. It matters in how much we can enjoy worship. And so... If you are struggling to enjoy worship, what you're struggling to maybe understand and enjoy is God's very love for you. So you have to return to the fount. And you have to wrestle with it just as Jacob did. If you would hear what Alan Ross says about this particular section as we begin the book of Malachi, he says, the title of the book characterizes this prophecy as a burden. The oracles included here will be heavy and stern, but the messages are also consolatory, and they are not against Israel, but to Israel. So the words that you're going to hear are not against you, they are to you, and there the difference does lie. That because of God's love, you can receive them as to and not against. Because you're in Jacob, 
You can receive them as two, but if you reside in the arrogance of Esau, it will be against. And he goes on to say, but the messages are consolatory. They're uh, not against, but two. And there are hopeful notes of forgiveness and joy if the people will heed the warnings. So do you ever feel burdened to share God's love with those in your spheres of influence? ever burdened to share it. And again, I'm afraid that what you hear is only verbiage. Like you, you've, got to, you, you've got to share some sort of verbal thing, which, yes, at some points you have to. However, it could also mean how you love and care for them. Um, I've been trying to think about, so I took my first trip to the ER on Thursday night. I got to tell you, it was awesome. It really was. It actually turned out great. Um, we were getting ready to go to bed, and I accidentally knocked a glass off the table that shattered before it hit the floor. And it got my finger first, which made me kind of, I saw a bunch of blood coming out of my finger. I was like, well, that's probably not good. And then I looked down, and the pool of blood around my foot that was crime scene level uh, concerned me even further. And so I called out to Susan. I said, hey, this ain't good. And I laid down on the floor. Uh, I didn't really faint. I mean, I, wasn't, I didn't feel faint. I was just wondering if it was coming because the level of blood coming out of me just didn't seem right. Uh, that stuff's supposed to stay on the inside, not on the outside. And so she's trying to apply compression and, uh, and it's just bleeding. It's terrible. And so I, I told her, I said, hey, go grab some butterflies. We'll just butterfly this thing. I'll go to bed. It's no big deal. And she's like, I can see inside your foot. I, that's not good. And so, so we butterflied it enough to get me to the hospital. So we get there and we walk in and there's nobody in the ER, which is Marietta. We, we're, we, we get crazy. We get live here in Cobb County. I don't know how it was, it was slow, but we moved through pretty quickly. And, uh, and the, the PA who stitched me up, she comes in. I was telling her, I was like, I told her just a butterfly. What do you think? Should we just a butterfly it? And she had numbed it. Fortunately, she sticks her finger in it and runs it up because she's making sure there's no glass in there. She's like, that's why you couldn't butterfly it. And I almost fainted at that point. When you see someone's <laughs> finger uh, run through your foot, it's not good. And so, but they were, they were so amazingly gracious. And I'm trying to figure out a way to go back and thank them for how good they were to us, uh, if I can. And, I, and just that, that want, because they, they asked me, I was reading, they said, oh, so what do you do? I told them I'm a pastor. And you can always tell, it, from there it was like, Uh, yeah, I just got quiet because they thought it was going to get weirder, weirder from there. Uh, but uh, they, they, they were great. And so uh, I, I do, I want them, I got the sense that no, they're not, they don't have, some of these folks don't have a church family. And so I don't know, just, they've just been on my heart and mind. I'd love to, to, to see them part of something. And so trying to think through how to go back and, and, uh, and just make sure they know how much I appreciated, how much, how much uh, she did a great job sewing it up and, uh, and it's just been so kind. And so, um, but, but that, it could be something like that. I'm not going back to like, I'm not going to like slip the million dollar track in the car and be like, you know, that whole thing. Uh, if you do that, that's cool. That's your, your style. It doesn't work for me. Um, and so, um, so just, are we ever burdened to share God's love in any way, form or fashion with the people around us? And again, it's not always even that it has to be a non-Christian. You do understand that Christians lose their way, right? And not only do they lose their way, but sometimes they lose their way and they don't tell anybody they've lost their way. They just kind of hide in plain view. And they're hurting and they're hemorrhaging and they never tell you. And maybe you haven't paid enough attention to really notice, but, but 
It's them too that need to hear it. So this burden is not just for the lost. It's also for the found who are straying, the found who are wounded, the found who are broken. And then you need to think about what are some of the barriers um, that you experience at various times and in various circumstances? What is it that keeps you from sharing it in some way, form, or fashion? Are you afraid to be rejected? Are you afraid that someone's going to think less of you as if they don't already know? As if your silence is actually not more damning than anything you could ever say. And then what has been most helpful and encouraging to you when you have shared the gospel with others? What has, what has been helpful to you? What are you using and helping you to cultivate? It's not just technique. Techniques do help, by the way. I'm not against the F-A-I-T-H outline and all that kind of stuff, uh, if it's helpful to you. But, but again, different people require kind of different approaches. And so but what they need to know is that they're being heard and that they are cared about before anything else. So often, we just jump straight to Hey, let's just do this thing. Yay or nay? Heaven or hell? Which way are you going? Turn or burn? Right? And that's, that's not what people are... That, that doesn't resonate as well with folks, and especially in our culture now. There was a season in which that actually worked pretty well. Um, I didn't live in that season. And so, um, so what are we willing to do to make sure people know that they're loved? Because it's amazing. Being heard is validating. And so often, we just don't even, we're not listening. So Malachi 1.1 teaches us, that God graciously burdens his people to share his love with others who have strayed away from him or have never known him in their spheres of influence. This isn't just about Malachi the prophet. This is you and the Great Commission. Don't forget Easter Sunday. Don't forget why Christ resurrected and has given you all this resurrection power. James Fisher, I'll close with this and then we'll transition to communion. He says, the message of the prophet was to tell who Yahweh was. The message was not from men to God, meaning we are sorry. It was from God to man. And it said Yahweh is father, lover, a God who is faithful, because that is the kind of God he is and who wants most of all that his people be faithful to him. That's what he longs for, is that we would know the fullness of the joy of our obedience, not that we would be bedraggled with a bunch of rules and regulations. That's why he boils it down to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor. So as we transition to the table, remember that Christ bore the heaviest burden of all, which means that he, um, he was willing to bear the fullness of our sin and shame and guilt, but also he was willing to bear the fullness of the stroke of the wrath of God. And so the burden, when he says that his burden is easy and his burden is light, that's why. Because you don't ever, if you are in Christ, you never have to taste of that. The displeasure of our God, the only thing that you have to taste is the goodness and love of the Lord our God. And so how are you cultivating your taste buds?